Hi, I'm John Alexander, pastor of Liberty Church of the River Wards, and I'm joined by Carol Davis, who serves as our spiritual director in residence here at the church. And as we've announced in recent weeks, we're here today to talk about um, biblical cases and um, his historically cases that different parts of the global church have made uh, in favor and not in favor of ordaining women as pastors. You may know that um, over the past century, there's there's been a lot more discussion about this issue than there were than, than there was the first 1900 years or so of church history, and um, we believe that both positions should be taken seriously, even though our church uh, tradition, our denomination, has a specific stance. The Presbyterian Church in America, of which we're a member church, does not ordain women pastors, but we believe that. Uh, Every once in a while, we should take a close look at what the Word of God has to say. Every time I look, I learn more, and I definitely learn more about where other people are coming from who have a different view. So today, what Carol and I are going to do is we're going to try to really fairly represent both views, share a little bit about where we each individually stand, how our individual positions have changed a little over the years, and also take some Q&A um, from people in our congregation who have different views. So um, with that, Carol, we talked about starting with a question that came from a congregant. We're mainly gonna end with questions after we share about uh, some, some key biblical texts and cases that are made from scripture. Uh, we're gonna do some Q&A at the end, but I wanted to start with this one question because I think it's really a helpful frame for the whole discussion. Um, would you like to read that sure. uh, to get us started? Yes. In light of the discussions on this topic, I would be interested in hearing, what I would be interested in hearing is what to do as an incumbent member and leader who doesn't agree with the teaching of the church. What does it look like to wrestle through this in community? Because I'm not really interested in being pastored to come back to a place of agreement with the church teaching, in fact, I find myself more and more compelled to speak up in opposition. So how do we engage productively in this conversation in a way that honors the conviction I feel and honors the people I'm in community with? Yeah. So do you want to speak to that, Carol? When we were reading through the questions as they came in, you had a pretty strong, positive response to the sentiment in this question and some personal narrative that kind of aligned with it. Sure. And I, I would love to just share a, a story from my um, evolution with thinking about texts where there's disagreement. And this is when I was in seminary, I um, was involved in taking many different courses from many different professors. And it was so instrumental because one day in class, in the morning, I had a particular uh, text that was exegeted and it was for whether or not gifts, the spirit, uh, charismatic gifts are for this age or not. And so the professor that was teaching me, he was an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And as he executed that passage, he came to the conclusion that the gifts were not appropriate for this age. And he presented a very strong case. And then in the evening, I was in another course with another professor who was also an ordained minister 
in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and he happened to be exegeting the same passage of scripture. And he came to the conclusion that the gifts were operative for today. Mm. So two professors, equally skilled in their areas, exegeting the, the same passage and coming to a different conclusion, teaching at the same institution. Mm. And so what that helped me sense was that there's room for disagreement. There's room for talking through difficult passages, even if you come out at different places. And these, these men were still committed to the authority of the scripture and the authority of the bodies that they were, you know, under authority to, the churches that they were under authority to. And so that felt like a really healthy way to begin to wrestle with some of these hard texts, which then I did proceed to do in, in my courses throughout the rest of the seminary, mm. and particularly with the role of women and the use of gifts um, yeah. for, for, for this age. And actually in our tradition in the Presbyterian Church in America, kind of another denomination from the OPC that you're describing, um, but both those denominations and many others have, uh, whenever there is a specific issue, a theological issue that, you know, the church creates a study committee and spends usually years studying and kind of comes up with a majority opinion. There's are, there's always these minority reports and they're kind of honored. Like they're put out there. They're published. Actually, they're published in perpetuity. Like, like this is the official minority report for this position. People can come back to it and like look at each position while also seeing, okay, this is where the church has really come to stand on this issue up until today. And so there's a, like, in addition to your personal narrative, there's kind of an embedded tradition about how to do that on all kinds of issues in our broader church family too. Yeah. So. And so what happens with a minority report is that, that the, the people that um, have presented that minority report submit themselves right. to the majority report. Okay. And so there's, there's, even if they still disagree with that, if they stay under that body, then they yeah. sub submit them to that. So that's where the unity and the peace and the purity of the church are preserved. Along with having a voice and, and frankly being honest. Yes. And like honoring one's own opinion. Yes. While also trying to honor the community. And I don't think it's perfect. No. I don't think it always feels great. But there is a... Uh, and I think, you know, there's more personal narrative to come. And, and I think also coming through people's Q&A or questions that they've brought in. Um, so we can talk about how we come up against this in different kind of ways. There's no cookie cutter response, I don't think. We kind of got to live into it. But there, there is a frame that's kind of come down to us about that we're describing about how that's been done. So um, before we go any further, I, I feel some obligation of telling people about your experience on this issue. Um, Carol, you uh, did a good bit of doctoral study on this very issue, the issue of women in ministry, um, over a period of time from your before your studies as a seminarian through your doctoral studies up until today, we've probably seen like a lot of waves of this conversation, um, along with uh, conversations in culture about um, you know injustices between the genders more generally and in the church. Um, what is uh, a, a biblical? Uh, case look like that really honors women, and you've been wrestling with it. Is it it's safe to say for decades, um, yes. and in in more than one denomination, and uh, on both coasts 
in some of the heartland of our country as well. So like, like really kind of span the continent in terms of church communities, uh, span the decades in terms of theological institutions, and just read many, many voices uh, on the issue. So um, thank you for sharing all that with us. Um, and um, uh, I, I suppose we'll dive in um, with a little bit of, I think we said we were going to uh, do the, the front end study proper before we get to Q&A talking about some of these key texts of scripture, and we can't do it exhaustively, um, but we, I think, can do it briefly and fairly, um, what each position is. And uh, this, this video is meant to lead to a congregational dialogue that itself doesn't end when we gather to talk, but can be part of an ongoing uh, understanding within the congregation of how we can talk to each other and where we've been. So hopefully this will hold a place in years to come that we can go back to and, and learn from, even if it's corrected down the road. Um, but before we dive into the key text, I do think a, a brief word on nomenclature is helpful. And by that, I mean, there are, there's no getting around talking about the two camps on the issue. And the two words that's gonna be helpful for everyone to know, many of you may know it already. Uh, the two words are complementarian and egalitarian. And the, the word complementarian you can hear the word complementarity in there. That refers to the camp that believes that men and women are entirely equal in God's sight, um, but not identical in ministerial functions and how, how men and women minister in the gathered congregation. And so they, they, they emphasize that, that point with the name complementarian. And the other side refers to itself as the egalitarian camp, which uh, also believes in the full equality of men and women, but also believes that there is, there is uh, and should not be any uh, distinction between roles in ministry. They believe that uh, men and women are called in every office of the church to do anything within the church. Um, they're the egalitarian camp. I think it's worth saying that neither term is perfect. <laughs> like complementarians also see themselves as sorts of egalitarians because they think we, we think men and women are equal. Egalitarians, many of them also believe that there, there are unique ways that women live into pastoral ministry, um, diaconal ministry as women, but believe they should be able to, to fill the roles. So there's, there's definitely egalitarianism and complementarianism on both sides, but you need to know how each camp understands itself in terms of name. Complementarian is the name of the, the camp that uh, does not ordain women as pastors and egalitarian is the name of the camp that does ordain women. And so with that, um, we're gonna spend about, I think the first half of this video, just talking about some of the key passages and Carol is going to, uh, you're gonna take uh, upon yourself the case for women being pastors as it's been made uh, historically as people in that camp have looked at scripture and we're going to look at a few key texts, and I am then going to describe the position of the complementarians who do not believe that, based on scripture, women should be ordained to the office of pastor. So with that, Carol, would you like to take it away and try to, uh, as best you can, briefly representing the egalitarian case for ordaining women as pastors from scripture? Well, I would um, like to say I'm going to start with two key verses that they would, um, the Galatians would say 
um, make their claim in, in the clearest in the clearest way. The first one is sort of in a positive way why they see that um, this is an important, very important issue, and that's from that's from Galatians three, and then the other one is uh, from a more negative. Uh, uh, point of view, maybe they uh, refute uh, uh, um, first, first Timothy 2. And here it is. First, but we're going to start with uh, Galatians 3, verses 25 to 29. Here it is. This is from the ESV. But now that faith has come, you are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so... Maybe you can tell where they, the egalitarians would go right off the bat with that because there is no distinction anymore between uh, male or female because, because you're all one in Christ. They're, they're, they're talking about the, the idea of the new creation. Mm. That we're now in the new creation era because Christ has come. Right. And so being in that new creation era and there being no distinction between male and female then that makes that be that the functions of the old era are no longer in play now because the new era has come. And part of the old function of the old era was these role distinctions right. that are talked about in, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then talked about throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. So these role distinctions are no longer in place. So this is a really key verse in the key set of verses because of the positive nature of um, women being affirmed as right. equal to men, right. no distinctions. So that's, um, that's one piece of it. Now, why do they come to that as an issue of, um, in Galatians, because Galatians is really more about the, the Jew-Gentile distinction. And, and, and that is sort of the, uh, it's, it's not necessarily the point of Galatians to be talking about how the church should function. And so why do they come to this conclusion? And they come to this conclusion because of those three pairs that are brought together in these verses. So of course the first pair is Jew and Gentile. And that is the heart of Galatians through the, you know, so you're not under you're not under the law. Gentiles are are in Christ the same as Jews are in Christ. You know, circumcision is not needed. All these other laws are not needed. You know, so that's that's sort of the heart of of Galatians. But because these two other pairs are brought in, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, those other pairs are brought into the conversation, and so that leads. The, some of the egalitarians there to say that that means this is also giving us information for how the church should operate. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about 
uh, the Jew-Gentile distinction. But interestingly enough, okay, the Jew-Gentile distinction, the slave or free uh, distinction, um, this points to another point of what egalitarians would like to say is that there's movement. Yeah. There's movement. So the um, we, we can all see the movement in the Jew-Gentile distinction. We can all see the movement in the slave-free distinction. So because there's movement in the Jew-Gentile distinction and there's movement in the slave-free distinction, then there's movement in the male-female distinction. So, so they're, 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 it's a, it's, they're wooden, they're brought together as pairs and there's consistency in the pair. So that describes the movement that is happening. And this is uh, sometimes referred to as a trajectory argument. Um, there was a guy named William Webb who about, I guess 40 years ago now, really popularly wrote about this, but like uh, you can go chapter and verse, which we're gonna do, um, in terms of like exact key passages. But then there's also just the trajectory of the whole Bible. Mm -hmm. The whole story is about one nation becoming the one who brings access to God to all nations. And um, this, this, uh, this increase of grace and freedom and uh, you might say egalitarianism of a sort coming to all people, um, it, it, it is a, a key verse, but it also is kind of representing this trajectory argument. Don't we see grace and more parity between different groups just growing and growing and growing and growing and growing? Why wouldn't it grow into um, parity in roles, um, I identical functions and roles, let's say, so the argument goes, between men and women in the church as well as all of the places. Is that fair? Yeah. That that's part oh, yeah. of the trajectory yeah. argument is, is one of the ways that that's, yeah. that's described. And, they, and, they're, and they definitely believe in the trajectory argument. Yeah. Yes. The egalitarians would definitely okay. agree with that. So... I, I suppose it, it it would be most expedient to, when we come up against these passages, go ahead and share the complementarian interaction with these texts. This is mainly the egalitarian case. Here's some complementarian responses. And then when it comes to mainly the complementarian case, we'll get egalitarian responses back, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, we'll talk sure, about this a little sure. bit. So the complementarian response uh, would be, there is something here. Of course there is. There's something here about the trajectory of grace going to all people. That is definitely the arc of all the scriptures. Um, the main response to this verse being a prime text for women being ordained in ministry is that there are many uh, texts by the same author, Paul, that speak more plainly to the issue of who's in different leading functions within the church. Um, and we'll get to those. But that is not really, as you said, what this verse is about. Uh, Galatians is about um, who gets access to God and how. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Galatians 3 is not about ministry. It's about um, uh, the equality of human beings, not functions. Um, so the complementarians would largely suggest, should we not focus more on this question, since there's a, a good bit of ink spilled on it, um, look at the passages that are more specifically about ministry in the context of problems within local churches or opportunities within local churches, which isn't so much what these verses are about. Um, this seems to be more about uh, even, you know, interestingly enough, uh, in verse 28, 
there is a little bit of a, of a change up when it gets to male and female. It says neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, but it does not say neither male nor female. It says no male and female. And um, some of the significance of that, so the complementarian case goes, is this is Paul's way of talking basically about circumcision, um, which is a big part of the book of Galatians. Galatians arguably is about circumcision because at one point that was uh, the sign of males access into the covenant community as baptism is today. But in the new covenant, it's not circumcision with a blade. It's baptism for both men and women. And so the idea might be because this is a book about access to God um, in, in a part of the book that's accenting how both men and women get to God through that initiatory right. Perhaps that's another reason. Let's not talk about ministry here so much as how do you enter into the community? How do you belong to the community? Not necessarily who ministers within. So the case goes. Sure. So the case goes. Um, and some people find that more or less compelling. So um, Galatians 3 being one of the main um, positive cases for the egalitarian position. There's another one that's uh, one of the main uh, uh, arguments. Uh, how would you put it? Well, it, it, it's an argument. It, the, the, the egalitarian position focuses very much on showing the nature of the hardness of interpreting this passage in first in first timothy 2. right and we should probably read that now so and and we're going to do we're actually going to start with verse 11. oh well done yeah yep okay. verse 11. verse 11 and it's uh first timothy 2 verse 11 to verse 15. Yep. and it's let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So I, I, I want to... Um, Say that the, this passage is really, uh, I think it's a key passage for uh, the egalitarians in the sense of helping people understand how complicated this verse is. And it is. And it's a, so they say because it's such a complicated verse on so many levels for the complementarians to make this their primary verse of stating their case, that doesn't seem like the way to go. So they're, 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 that's why they would probably say this, this shouldn't be a verse that, 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 that the complementarians, just like, just like the, the complementarians were saying to the, to the egalitarians, the Galatians 3 passage shouldn't be a verse that you base it on right. because the context of it is so much that Jew-Gentile. So, and it's an yes. issue of access. So then, then the, the egalitarians will come back. So this should be a verse that you base it on because of the, the how complex it is yeah. to really unpack it. It confuses everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it confuses everyone. And, and, and I'm, I'm confused by it, even just revisiting it again, you know, in, 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 on both levels. But um, 
I think I want to take us back to an earlier verse in 1 Timothy to help us set the stage for it. And so I want to take us back because I'm, I'm thinking again of our first question. Hmm. Um, and, and it's in um, how are we going to approach discussing these things. And in, in 1 Timothy 1.5, it says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the reason why I wanted to use that as that's, that's you know, Paul's intention in 1 Timothy to discuss this. This. So that has to be our posture as we're talking about this very hard mm-hmm. um, set of verses and particularly uh, this one verse that we're going to really zero in, in, in on is, is, is that verse is that verse 12. And um, I wanted us to get verse 11 because it's the flow of the argument. Yeah. Um, but verse 12 is where we're going to talk about a lot of the controversy. And so there's three pieces of the controversy um, there that um, our, our, our passage, even the way the ESV, which I'm reading from, I do not appro- permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. There's, there's, there's um, three parts of the translation part of it that I want to talk about. But I also want to talk about context. I also want to talk about the context of of First Timothy, you know, where it's written in, we know that the context of First Timothy is false teaching. We know yeah. that. Yep. That's clear. That's clear, clearly stated in Timothy one, and and we know that the that the that uh, the false teachers are men. So yeah. those things are things that are clear, but um, what we don't clearly understand as much is how the influence of the goddess worship is influencing the false teachers who then might be influencing the women. The goddess being, this is really important. Armatia. Yeah, so Timothy is in Ephesus. Yeah. And uh, Ephesus was famous for housing one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which everybody thought Ephesus, first thing they thought about was the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. uh, uh, And who's a female deity only priestesses served at her temple. So could this be part of the context for understanding First Timothy? When you mentioned the temple, I just want to make sure everybody knew what temple you were referring to. Sure. Not the Hebrew temple, the temple in Ephesus. Yes. With only priestesses running it, which everybody would have known. Yes. So, yes. yeah. And so, so, so we, do, we, uh, you know, we don't, we know that that's the con, that, that, was going on in that church and how that was influencing the women. Yeah. So how was that influencing the women? We're not sure, but a certain interpretation of this particular um, uh, passage will 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 make that clearer as we look at it. And this is right. the interpretation of what the uh, what the egalitarians would say. And so that is the hard verb. The hard verb here is exercise authority over a man. Yeah. That is the hard verb. In, and, in, and it's the hard verb in, in, in the Greek because this is the only place in the Greek 
that this verb is used. And so then how do you, you know, our, our strategy for scripture interpreting scripture, you know, that's what we look to, but we don't have this word anywhere else, you know, used anywhere else. So, so that's, that makes it complicated. That, that's one of the complex natures of, of interpreting this verb. Now, the egalitarians interpret this differently, exercise, exercise authority over man. Uh, the egalitarians interpret as assume authority over man. Yeah. And so that's why the context that this church is finding itself in a city that has goddess worship, where the, the, where the female is honored and priestesses are there, so that, that were women learning from that and were the false teachers, you know, influencing that because it's unclear exactly what the false teachers, that is unclear. So it, so we're in this context. And so it's not far-fetched to think yeah. that the women were being influenced this way. Hence that interpretation of, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, assuming authority over man rather than exercising authority over man. So would you say, it'd be accurate to say, Carol, um, egalitarians would say, in 1 Timothy 2, what Paul is saying is essentially, in Ephesus, the women were subjugating the men. And that was really in, in religious worship of their idolatry. And that assumed way of how worship worked from their old faith was creeping into their new Christian faith. It's like, well, of course, it's only women subjugating men in the context of Christian worship. And he's like, no, 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 no. I don't want anybody to assume authority over anybody just because of gender assumptions. Right, yes. And so that seems to be, it's like, I do not permit a woman to assume authority. Um, that's what he means. Yes. Is that, is that, is that an accurate that's a, a yeah. paraphrase? Yes, or, yes. Okay. Or is that, I don't want to overstate it, make it too neat, because there is still some mystery in it oh, all. Yes. We're trying yes. to find the context. Yes, yes. But that's, that's what, when I was rereading some of the material, that, that seemed to be the yes. case they were making. Yes, okay. yes. Okay. And so that's, so that's one of the issues of the verb. And then they go into the whole idea of uh, using Greek literature of the time of that, of that, that particular verb to say, so they're there and and they use it to say that is a common way that the Greek literature uses that particular verb. Which isn't found in the Bible, but is found elsewhere in yeah. Greek literature yeah. outside the Bible. Yeah, outside in the that Bible. context. Yeah. And the reason why the Egalitarians are support are looking to the you know, again, looking to the outside is because it's not found in usage in the in the New Testament. Right. But they do find it outside. I see. Okay. So that so that's the, so that's that particular verb. Okay. So so um, but that's not the only like translation issue that's going on there. There's there's a, there's the translation of that verb. You see, to teach or to exercise authority over. Me. Right. And so the or there, that particular conjunction, the egalitarians would say, combine is makes the force of teach and exercise and and assume authority over come together in and making one thought instead of two thoughts it's a technical phrase it's a technical it can't phrase. be separate the two words can't be separated yes. by, by or yes and it could be like like hit and run 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. You need both. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. So, so that it creates one meaning. Yeah. That's that's how they can conjunction user. And one of the egalitarians, Payne, would said that he he has looked at every single use in the writings of Paul of when he's using that particular conjunction, and it's used to create one meaning. Okay. And so that's 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 compelling. So that's that's one of the other things that's going on ex exegetically, and then um, you know in the translation part of it. Now we don't get that in the translation part of it. We wouldn't know that in the translation part of it in how we read it, because how we were reading it in the ESV and a lot of. Uh, Modern translations. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. We, you know, we we don't see those um, translation problems. Yeah. Now, I will I, I will say that the the ESV Study Bible brings up those things in in its study notes. Okay. And it brings up those things in its study notes to support the complementarian view. Yeah, it was an unapologetically complementarian motivated. Editorial staff, yeah, like that—that yeah. that was their position. Yeah, yeah. So, so it brings that up. So, so at least like that gives us some sense to understand how complicated this 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 yeah. verse is. It does. It, so I, I appreciate it for that reason. Um, Payne Payne also cites the fact that the the NIV NIV the 2011 NIV switched with exercise authority over to assume authority. Huh. So in 2011. It, it, it changed there. Now, See, there may side, be... and so like even if, if, if uh, viewers are not familiar with this dynamic, Bible translations are, fluid. are they're fluid and they're also no. sometimes ideological. Right. Oh, they're right. ideologically driven and, and they're yeah. and not just by one side. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the ESV, uh, we can say in some ways lamentably uh, at times is skewing the translation a little bit too ideologically. That's it. You can't always avoid it because translating is so hard. Mm -hmm. um, you you got to be going for the sense as best you can tell, but you also can't. It just comes away as ideological sometimes. NIV more recently is doing the same thing. NRSV has done the same thing for many decades. So um, that in of itself is a very interesting conversation about like what it might look like to, to, to you have to look across multiple translations, knowing what some of the biases are, mm -hmm. for, for better and worse. Sure. Yeah. And the idea is when you look at different translations that can help you when you're studying, because when you see a significantly different translation of a word, then that says, oh, that alerts you. Yeah. That alerts you. Yeah, okay, there's something different going on here. There's something different going on here, and maybe I need to do more study. Yeah. Yes. And it's easier than ever. Yeah. You know, uh, to, to find, I mean, with help like uh, online, a lot of the studies that have been done. Um, there's a blog about everything. Yeah. There's also like a lot of access to like real um, legitimate and respected journal articles by sure. experts on these things. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, if I I, can, yeah, please. Okay, I've got one more okay, yeah. translation thing about this text. And that's, that's um, I do not permit. So permit there, the way that Payne would say, the, the way that word is used it, it would be um, present, so it makes it into like more of a situational use, not a permanent use. 
So the, so the way that ver verb is constructed, and so he would say you would really need to be doing, I do not now permit, or, well, he doesn't like that one so much, but maybe that's the, what the Amplified Version does. But he would say, I, 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 I am not permitting. So that gives it, so that gives it more of a situational nature because of the, that, the, the, how that verb is. is uh, uh, okay. So anyway, so we have those three sort of translation things that, that, that are complicated for this particular verse. And then, you know, we have a, we have a context that um, is unclear about what actually is false teaching. And then we have a context of the community that First Timothy, you know, that, it, it, that teaching, is, yeah. is teaching it. So those are, those are um, some things about this particular verse. Well, um, I just want to say, well, we're going to get to how listening to the other side has impacted. And I think there's a lot of insight in the egalitarian position. Any biblical scholar would want to say, let's understand the original context. And anybody who looks at First and Second Timothy without thinking about what Ephesus meant has blinders on. Now, it's incredibly important to understand like the weight of ministry in a place like Ephesus, where there were riots over. I mean, the Bible talks about in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, 18, 19. 18, 19 yeah, uh, we're going to talk about Acts 18, but Acts yeah. 19, there was a riot because the gospel being spread threatened the work of statue makers who were employed by the temple of Artemis. Yeah. And then you get letters to the new church in that city. I mean, you better be paying attention to what Artemis meant. To speak to the complementarian rebuttal, there's a lot of them. Frankly, uh, sometimes it's just like, uh, it, they're, they're, they can be a little bit all over the place. I will say the one that's most compelling to me, and it's one I actually also personally hold. Um, they're, they're, both sides seem to recognize what's going on in the unique verbiage of I do not permit a woman to teach or slash and to hold authority, which is arguably translated, as you said, something like, uh, authoritative teaching, the authoritative teaching. And so a lot of complementarian traditions will say, of course, women can teach. Uh, of course, women do teach in scripture, but exactly because this is a technical phrase, authoritative teaching, um, it's not talking about just any other kind of teaching. It's talking about the authoritative teaching that really drives the culture of the church. Um, they would say that, they, they would say, yes, we need to know about the context um, of, of Ephesus. And arguably, Paul's being sensitive to that by using this phrase, saying it's authoritative teaching I'm talking about, folks. Um, like, let's honor the women in your midst in certain ways, but also like acknowledge something of the complementarian view of teaching. I, so the position goes however strong or weak it is. The most compelling part of the complementarian case about this passage goes towards the end of the section you read, where it gets into Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. And it references Adam and Eve both before the fall in Genesis 2, where it says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So we're not talking, he's, he's referencing something that doesn't have to do with sin, but is original somehow. And then he goes and references something that does have to do with sin, original sin, where he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. They're talking about sin in the garden. Uh, they would say, 
Adam is implicated in this, by the way. In some ways, he has the greater fault because uh, as the early Jewish and Christian traditions went, Adam was the priest in the garden who, uh, like, where was Adam when the serpent came for Eve? Like, that's the big question that was, uh, was always talked about in, among the ancients. Of course, Adam is at fault, but there was something subversive happening in the garden, and there's something subversive happening in Ephesus. And watch out for it. So they're saying, actually, uh, we need to look back to what, what he's talking about, which, by the way, is still not completely clear um, and, and messy. But the reference back to what was original. Um, some people say, oh, well, that was just sin. And Christ has redeemed us from sin. So let's not talk about Adam and Eve. It's like, well, no, he doesn't. He talks first about before sin, Adam and Eve. So however you translate these verses, you have to answer the question, why is Paul going back to the original very good state in the garden and making a reference to how teaching works now with Adam being first and the woman becomes second? And there are things that can happen there. Um, there are things where you can take a different position, but whatever you do, you have to, you have to find your way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and, and then to Genesis 3 and make some sense of it there. And I'm actually, I can't give you a list of what everybody does when you get to that place. But that's where the complementarians go. Sure. And so they still say, yes, it's still very confusing. Sure. But because of where he goes, um, let's be very careful about saying there are no healthy gender principles that are actually being commended to us about some kind of difference within a worshiping community. Let's be very careful about that based on where he goes. Yeah. Um, that's the best I can describe the complementarian case. Sure. Now, the egalitarians would say that going back to, uh, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, going back to that, they would, they would address that, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman deceived and became a transgressor. Um, so they would, they would want to say that, it's, that the creation order, um, some would say that Adam being created first is not an issue of authority. Though, though, you know, in the Old Testament, of course, there is that going on. They would want to say it's more there. It's brought up for more sequential reasons to then get to the fact that that, um, you know, the woman was deceived and became transgressor. But of course, there but, but of course, the woman being deceived and became transgressor is completely reversed in Christ in their, you know, is is their estimation. Yes. So, yeah. so anyway, so that would be a little bit of a response. Yeah, that would be the response. Yeah, yeah, that would be a little bit of a response. And I'll let yeah. that be the final word um, yeah. and, and, and leave it a little bit of a, where do we go from here? Because kind of that's kind of, I feel still how I always come away from this text. I'll be completely honest. Like trying to lean in, trying to listen and all this kind of, I frankly have never preached it. This text, we've done Second Timothy, not First Timothy for a lot of reasons. We'll do First Timothy someday. And um, I don't know exactly how I would, try to untangle through lots of prayer and lots of listening. So I'll let that interpretive uh, thought be the final word for this particular text. So let me, yeah, yeah I, please. I, I do have one more. I yeah. thought of this um, final thought, two things. Um, that um, why the, the, from the egalitarian point of view, this, this text is so important to, to see it um, contextually from, again, what was going on there. 
um, in, in the culture, but it also is, is important to see it from the fact that the translation part of it. So it's not like, like when I first looked at the egalitarian view, this is where a shifting happened for me, began to, I began to appreciate that the egalitarians weren't just dismissing it's not relevant for today because it's culturally conditioned because of the occasional nature of an epistle. So, so they would just dismiss it. It's occasional nature. It's specific to the situation, so it can't be normative. So that was sort of the argument that I thought, well, that seems to not be doing justice to the text. But because egalitarians have taken to this more, um, especially Payne and others too, let's look at the, the translation part of it. So their argument is more than just, it's, it's not culturally mandated. You know, so it's, I mean, it's the cultural part of it is why we shouldn't abide by it. But there's, there's these uh, translation yeah, they're, problems. They're, they're trying to honor the text. The te yeah. And, and there are, this is easy to say. I think complementarians really like interacting with those egalitarians better. Like, like uh, it's much easier to honor one another when you see real wrestling with the text. I think on both sides, yes. Um, which is really, yeah. I mean, it's well put. Yeah, um, that that does change things. It's like we're not just trying to dismiss this as irrelevant. We're trying to wrestle with what's there and why was this so precious to the early church? Yes. Um, um, well, I mean, we we need to shift to to the other side at some point, which which in some ways is still like we've been going back and forth. It's not just been yeah. egalitarian then complementarian. Yeah. We are going to shift to some of the main texts that complementarians love to go to. Um, to defend their positions, but talk to me about Acts 18, because I think on this issue, we're going to have no argument. Talk to me about Priscilla and Aquila. Oh, yes. So, so the, the wonderful thing about that, you know, Acts 18 is, is, is that both are included in teaching. Okay. You know, so they're both included in teaching. Let's go to it and you can yeah. see because there's a, an important feature of, um, so if we may, if we may say this, well, correct me if I'm wrong, Carol. This this might be the last. Not not this is not the the only three texts that egalitarians go to, but these are the three: Galatians three, First Timothy two, and Acts eighteen that we're going to go to to talk about mainly the the egalitarian position. And this is where um, a husband and a wife, or I should say, a wife and a husband, because she's mentioned first, which isn't an accident. Priscilla and Aquila meet a apostle who he ends up being basically an apostle apollos who's teaching and they both take him aside and correct him and teach him and set him right theologically and then send him off again to make a whole lot of disciples of jesus um, and it's right at the end of acts 18. we're looking at verse um 24 through 26. okay let me um I can read that. Please do, yeah. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, confident in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began speak, to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
And so it, it's clearly teaching. But we've, 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 we've agreed that um, on some level, both the egalitarians and the complementarians say that women you know, can teach. But this one shows that, that uh, with, when they want to say Priscilla um, is listed first, so that said something about her role in, and she's not just teaching, she's correcting. Yeah. And so it has a bit more authority to it, even though it's in the one-on-one the -on -one context. Yes, and I think it's, well, I, I mean, just like, uh, if you'll excuse the pun, not all complementarians are, 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 yeah, are created right. equal. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like created equal before God, but not all their cases should be taken as seriously. Yeah. There are complementarians who say, under no circumstances should any woman in the context of any church environment teach a man, and that's just not what's in the Bible. I mean, you have women teaching men. You can't get away from it. Yes. Um, complementarians would say, okay, we're looking at the whole Bible, including the text that say, let's get really careful in the ordered worshiping community and your gathered worship, and that's where Paul spends, tends to spend most of his time talking about roles mm -hmm. uh, in worship. But you obviously have these talented, gifted, sharp Christian women saying, that is doctrinal error. Listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. And teach it. You just can't get away from it. So um, maybe like as a bridge, you know, between like, like the egalitarian and complementarians, whatever, whatever else we do, I mean, I'm learning from you now. Our people are learning from you now um, and in many other settings. Like, of course this is happening. Of course this is happening in the Bible. And so somehow this must be honored. The best version of an egalitarian, the best version of a complementarian, has to be seeing this in our midst somewhere and just acknowledging that this is this is happening and, and should happen. So, um, uh, any any final thoughts there? Uh, on, on that note, I know I kind of because I, I I find that an opportunity. I, I find yeah. like so I get excited about that one. I'm like this is this is one of those places that there are key differences, but it's one that I think we can all agree on. Right, I don't know right. what to do if we can't agree on this point Right, um, right. about some church relationships where we're getting women's voices to teach and equip. And, uh, and I think that's important. And certainly the egalitarians would say that. Um, that does just bring in one other comment about using uh, the, you know, first, first, First Timothy in the pastoral uh, epistles as uh, normative for how we should be in gathered worship. I see. Okay. So the gather the the gathered worship which we're alluding to um, yeah. is different than this one on one teaching, and the egalitarian and the egalitarians would say that First Timothy as a pastoral epistle should not necessarily be used to say how all gathered teaching should happen. Right. On that note, yeah. a few texts that the complementarian position would more quickly point to, and I'd love your thoughts on these. One is, uh, kind of go right there, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, um, and I'll direct people to it, I'm gonna be, read very briefly, this is down around verse 33, it's a long chapter, it is, it is maybe, like 1 Corinthians is the main letter in the Bible for things that articulate sometimes obsessively in detail 
everything from the Lord's Supper to what your hair looks like to who's speaking, how often in tongues or not in gathered worship. It's like the letter about gathered worship. Yes. Not only about that, but you get the most stuff in there. First sure, Corinthians. Sure, first so First Corinthians 14, um, you've get uh, verse 33, we'll call it B, the second half of verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints. So he's saying, he's, it really does seem like he's talking about the universal church here, not just mm -hmm. Corinth. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submissive as the law also says. Now, a few things that complementarians are quick to point out. For the most part, nobody thinks this silence is absolute. First Corinthians 11, it's very clear. We're still talking about gathered worship. I won't go there now, but this is verses one through nine. We're talking about women praying. We're talking about, it seems like in context, once in a while at least, women prophesying, certainly praying. And yet there's this charge that there is a submission invited from the women of the congregation, as in all the churches. And so that's one um, that complementarians will go to. However you interpret it, uh, what that silence means, not absolute. Some kind of teaching functions are in the church. Somehow we got Priscilla, but like, why would Paul say this? Is it only contextual to Corinth? It doesn't seem like that's possible because he's saying, as in all the churches. Um, is it possible he's speaking only to all the churches in Corinth? You could make that case, although I don't think it's the strongest one. Um, so when complementarians are going to say, okay, we want to acknowledge the Priscilla's that are gifted to us in the church. But when you, you look at 1 Corinthians 14, you're like, man, this it's really hard to unsee what we just saw in 1 Timothy 2. Can that be contextualized away in Ephesus? It sounds a lot like what he's saying in Corinth. And in Corinth, he's saying, as in all the churches. So complementarians start to bring, and you can kind of understand why. Sure. Start to bring, scripture. Start to bring these letters to different churches together and say, I just don't think we can disregard a very important principle of some gendered specifics in terms of who's doing different things in worship. And so 1 Corinthians 14 um, and I'll go back to 1 Corinthians 11 in a moment, very briefly, which makes a similar but different point. But any, any thoughts there about 1 Corinthians 14? Yeah, the, the, the thought that I would have about 1 Corinthians 14 comes directly from Payne. Okay, and this is, and this is remind everybody in who, again, who's Payne. He's a, yeah, Philip Payne, and he has been uh, working on the, this um, since 1986, he says, when he started his uh, doctoral work at Cambridge, and he came into working on his PhD work in Cambridge as a complementarian and then heard things there that shocked him into wanting to study more deeply the scripture and then spent the rest of his career really on, on this, uh, many other places too, but the book he's written is called Man, Man and Women, One in Christ that, that, okay. that presents the egalitarian view, I think, uh, pretty comprehensively. Um, but anyway, so what he would say about the, this, this passage, 1 Corinthians 14, is that it is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, of 1 Corinthians 14, 
verses 33 and following specifically? Okay. okay. Yeah, so that's, that's how he sort of uh, lessens the validity, the validity of it because he said it's not, it's scrolled in the margins and on the, on, on, on the side of that. I see, okay. I usually, usually the ESV is pretty good at putting a footnote in when that's not included in the earliest manuscripts yes. and that's not there. But again, the ESV, not to say that there's no bias. Yeah, well, I've actually, it does that with John 8. It does do that with John 8, it does it with Mark 16. Yeah. It yeah. does it with, uh, with, with, with a number of places. I would have to revisit that point. Mm -hmm. I would have to revisit the, that point about whether or not this is uh, Tom, uh, Payne's, yeah, Payne's, in the earlier, yeah. Payne's position about whether this is original or not. So he makes the case that that is not scripture, that yeah. that phrase is actually not scripture. Yeah. Okay, so that, was, that would be an egalitarian rebuttal to 1 Corinthians 14. A similar but distinct case based on 1 Corinthians 11, verses two and following. I actually referenced in the sermon yesterday. It's where um, uh, it, it's talking a little bit more about husband and wife, but also in the gathered assembly. Um, and it goes on and on. It's, it, it's, it kind of sets your head spinning. It kind of reaches into a lot of different directions, but verses two, I'll say all the way through 16, it's where we're talking about head coverings in worship and you know, whether men should have long hair or whatnot. There were actually a few Q&A questions about contextual questions about like when, when, the, when the scriptures talk about length of hair or head coverings in worship. Like we don't generally have women do head coverings in worship. So why should we care what the Bible says about roles? Um, well, I think we often have to pay close attention when the Apostle Paul takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he does that again here. Um, just like he did in 1 Timothy 2. He does it again here, um, where he says, um, uh, verse 8 and following, for man was not made from woman, but woman, uh, excuse me, verse, verse 7 and following, for a man not ought to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Um, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. But then, of course, it goes on to say, um, but now um, man comes from woman. Um, whenever I see something in Scripture, and it's not the only time Paul does this, it's not the only, only letter that he does this, whenever we think about what he's saying, about what the actual functions are in the worship service, I think we have to be very careful not to disregard when he's going back to something original and saying there does seem to be tied up in his idea of headship. Some people interpret headship as leadership. Other people um, identify headship meaning like a source, like comes from man and now man comes from woman. We talked about this yesterday. Whenever he's going back to make a principle about how things should look a little differently between men and women in gathered worship, I'm just very reticent to disregard because however we apply it today, he's looking at something original. And so uh, I'll be the first to say 1 Corinthians 11 confuses me. And we'll get into this a little bit more in the, in the Q&A. But um, it basically makes me, it's one of those passages that makes me way more careful about going egalitarian. Because once again, it's not just one place. It's multiple places across multiple letters. Paul's saying, 
be very careful about your maleness and femaleness, which are both glorious in the context of worship, because just like things were at first and God's perfect, very good creation, you're living that out somehow now when you gather in Jesus' name in worship and your maleness and femaleness needs to be coming through in an ordered way. And so this is one of those passage, passages without getting into head coverings and who's wearing what in worship, whatever else Paul is saying, he's saying your maleness is terribly important in worship. Your femaleness is terribly important because of how things were at first and because you're both so glorious. And the egalitarian position that minimizes the distinctions where it seems like he's really trying to maybe not maximize them, but point to them and saying, don't forget these key beautiful parts of who you are, not just here, but also in First Timothy. It just, more than anything else, I guess I'll just say, it makes me really want to put the brakes on again. Any egalitarian position that would say there's no distinction between men and women, I, I, just, I just don't know how. Particularly when we keep going back to the pre-fall garden, pre-fall garden, pre-fall garden. And so, yeah, uh, that's another sort of a case that I make for complementarianism, sure. although it's, it's more of a case against egalitarianism, I guess, the way sure. I'm describing it. Sure, sure. So, yeah. 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 Well, I, I don't know if that, that what you're saying right there, um, not so much about this particular verse, because I think the, this particular context I think the egalitarians would, this is how they would go after that, that the idea of head there doesn't mean leader. The idea of head means the prominent point, the prominent, like, like source, but they would say they're getting away from source a bit more and the sort of the prominent point, like the head is what controls the rest of the body. And so they would see that metaphor as an anatomical metaphor. Yeah. So, so that's that's how they were going it, and they would use the the exact verses that you use to say, um, uh, you know, for um, you know, uh, woman was made from man, and neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Uh, then you go into eleven, nonetheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent right. of man, than the man, the woman. Whereas the woman was made from man, so the man is now born of woman. So, so that's it's, what they're they're thinking. It's sort of carrying through with that anatomical, yeah. and so because this is anatomical here, yes. then that's anatomical there. So they're they're carrying through headship. headship and it does and acknowledge, acknowledging it, it does move in such an egalitarian direction. Yeah. Like it's initially so offensive. Yeah, it's like. Man was made for woman, woman for man, and yet he. Where does he land? He lands saying, "You can't shake each other off." Sure. Like, like, like you are so tied up and together, you need each other. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about the other egalitarian passages, like First Corinthians seven, like the 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 man's body belongs to the woman. Like yes. nobody had ever heard of that in the ancient world. Sure. Yes. Uh, and vice versa is true, but I can't get past though all of the references to submission, sure. all of them are directed towards women, towards men in the gathered community, obviously in ways that lift up and glorify and beautify and honor. But there's never a direction that goes in the other way. Um, not in this context. Um, not explicitly in 1 Timothy 2 and not in 1 Timothy 14, which egalitarian to make the case maybe isn't scripture. I don't, I don't know what to say to that. Yeah. Um, uh, 
But that, 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 that's just another. Make that argument. That's just another yeah, place that. Sure. Yeah, I'm not saying you do. Yeah. Uh, I'm just saying I. It's all going one way. Sure. In sure. terms of the, even though it's such an egalitarian text, yeah. the the distinctions within gathered worship are all going either way. Sure. Yeah. So that's that's um, the that's a case to be made. We could go First Timothy three, um, if anyone desires oh, qualifications for overseers, oh, yeah. arguably bishop or pastor. Um, Paul says uh, a husband of one wife doesn't really flip it. It seemed like it would be a good opportunity particularly in a letter to, to a church in Ephesus to flip it and say, also the wife of one husband could be a pastor. He doesn't do that. Uh, complementarians often note that, things like that. But I feel like we've gone back and forth enough. And um, so here's the last thing I want to say about trajectories. Yeah. Um, one of the things, uh, like we talked about, there's a trajectory for egalitarianism. Yeah. Um, complementarians also have a sort of trajectory argument about what we see from the beginning of scripture through to the end. And that is that in the Old Covenant, you see male kings, you see queens. Not, not many of them, but you see queens of Israel. Um, similarly, you see both male or female judges uh, in the book of Judges. Some similar kind of ruling roles. So men and women, mostly men, but, but women. Um, in, the, in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, New Testament, you have prophetesses. Um, women prophets. And what is a prophet other than someone who speaks forth the word of God? And by the way, there are people there listening. <laughs> like, so like it's a, it's a, it's an instructive function. Women in the old Testament had instructive teaching functions and in the new, and this is where we're going to get into a little bit of power positions have changed. Um, but the one thing that never happens in the old covenant or the new is there's never a female priest in the old covenant, never once. And um, offices do shift a little bit, but um, theologians across the board agree what, what does carry through from priests in particular to pastors or bishops, depending on your translations of the New Testament, is the sacraments. Those are the, in one sense, of course, all those in Christ are priests, we're a nation of priests. Well, the same in Israel though. There were then also specific priests, same in the New Testament, specific priests, and those are the ones who steward the sacraments. So you have in both covenants, uh, women and men both teaching. Um, women and men both, uh, well, particularly in the Old Covenant, I think it's less clear in the New Covenant, that, that uh, kingly function. But the priestly role, um, we don't see. We don't see uh, in the Old Covenant or in the New um, and I think that that is telling for the trajectory argument. And I don't need to go into it much, but it's, it's not a little compelling to me um, as you think about that key, which among Protestants is minimized. It's like, what do pastors do? Well, they preach. Well, no, pastors preach, but they also administer the sacraments and they um, uh, carry on that, that unique priestly work. And so, um, so you're saying so, that doesn't shift. That doesn't shift so to that include even women. The, yeah, so the trajectory yeah. of that is the same There's old and new covenant. Yeah, there is something that it seems like um, as uh, Adam, the caretaker in the garden temple, you know, as we've been talking about, all the way through the old covenant, there's never a female priest. And into, into the new, where you see the priestly work kind of transfer to the work of the sacraments, not sacrificing animals anymore. We have the once for all blood of Christ that is signified and uh, symbolized in 
uh, baptism and communion. This is the priestly work now, and, and we don't we don't see that passed on to women um, in the New Testament either. So that would be the complementarian's kind of trajectory. They'd say in some ways yes, there's a trajectory in some ways, in some ways no. So that that's the there's there's more we can say, but that's the one trajectory point that I think um, complementarians would point out. Um, so basically, hopefully, we've given about an hour of how different camps look at these scriptures. And um, by the way, I don't think we've been trying to articulate the two positions as if they were entirely our own, um, uh, but try to say, this is the egalitarian position, this is the complementarian position. Some pieces of the egalitarian position. Yeah, the pieces yeah. Some, of the some pieces, yeah. yeah. The pieces yeah. of the egalitarian position that I felt most compelling and sort of their stronger positions. Right. Um, so let's let that rest now, the, the main talk of these key passages. What's as important that we're going to go into in our next episode is how has all this impacted you? How have you been impacted by both positions, which I guess means has to include how has your position changed over the years? And um, I'll also share how my position has changed as I've been impacted by both positions. Um, and uh, we'll also uh, share a little bit about where we stand individually today. Obviously, we're both um, in submission to the same church, the same denomination today. Um, but uh, we'll share a little bit personally and a little bit about um, where we stand uh, ecclesially in, in, in the church. And then we'll also, in the next episode, do, do all the rest of the Q&A. So thank you for joining us for this. I mean, it's been exciting for me. I don't know if we're just a couple of dorks, but like I, like I get I get sharpened. I see something and hearing you present it, um, you know, stuff I've read before, but um, but it's special going through it with you. Um, so thank you and thank you, and uh, please tune in for the next episode where we get a little bit more personal and take your questions.